We've been making our way through the letters to the seven churches found in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Whatever else you make of Revelation, whatever else you, you see it as, you first have to see it as a letter written from Jesus through the Apostle John to seven churches, seven real churches in Asia. Uh, the letter would have been sent as a circular letter. It would have started in the church in Ephesus and they would have passed it on until it got back to Laodicea. So we've been looking at each of these letters, each of the letters to the churches. We started in Ephesus, and in Ephesus we saw the emphasis was, you remember? Love. The, uh, Jesus' admonition to the church in Ephesus, He said, I have this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Ephesus is all about love. Then we went on to Smyrna. Jesus has nothing against the church in Smyrna. Instead, He warns them of persecution. They were suffering persecution. More persecution was coming. And so He wanted them to remember that the presence of pain did not indicate the absence of God, but that God was with them. And so He wanted them to hold on to that. Last week, we looked at Pergamum. Pergamum, the third letter, is about truth and how we do not compromise the truth that God has given us. This week, we look at the middle letter, the fourth letter. It is the letter to the church in Thyatira. And the focus of this letter is holiness. Now, before you launch into Revelation chapter 2 today, I'm going to need you to turn back in your Bibles. If you're using the Bibles in the pews, it's going to be really easy for you to find. If you're using your, your devices and you're hooked up on our... Uh, uh, on our event on the devices, it'll be real easy for you to go to also. We're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 16. Those Bibles in the pews, if you want to grab one of those, it's page 298. Second, or excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 16, 1 Kings 16, verses 29 through 33. I need to read this to you because without it, you won't understand the context of what Jesus has to say to the church in Thyatira. You won't understand the force of the letter. You won't understand the shame that they must have felt when they received this letter. You won't really understand the horror uh, that they must have felt with what Jesus says to them. So 1 Kings chapter 16, beginning in verse 29, we read, "...in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Every Jew knew the story of Ahab and Jezebel. 
And every Jew traced the downfall of their nation back to Jezebel. Yes, prior to Ahab, prior to Jezebel, they had worshipped idols. They had, they had worshipped the pagan gods, the gods of their land. But do you hear what is said in verse 33? Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Jezebel's presence brought the nation to a new low. Their queen put them in bondage to pagan gods. Gods that required them to sacrifice their children in the fire. And so the Jews traced their downfall back to Jezebel. They, she was the reason they went into captivity. She was the reason they suffered under the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And 70 years later, when Judah comes back out of captivity, they will never, never touch a foreign god again. They will never bow to an idol again. In fact, a lot of the, a lot of the legalism that Jesus and Paul confront in that first century all traces back to the fear of being in bondage to a false god again. Jesus begins His letter in this letter to Thyatira. You have to understand that to understand this letter. In fact, you have to understand it to understand all the letters. But today, we're going to look at Revelation 2, 18-29. This is page 1029 in the Blue Bibles. Thyatira is the middle letter. There are seven letters all together. Thyatira is number four. You can kind of think of the letters as an arrow, right? You think of the seven letters as an arrow, and the letter to Thyatira is the tip of the arrow. And the arrow is pointing to what is right and what is wrong with these churches. Thyatira is the middle of that. It is the point of the arrow. It is the longest of all seven letters. It is also the harshest of the seven letters. And also, there is no greater reward in any of the other letters than there is in the letter to, Thi- to the church in Thyatira. And so we read this letter as the point, as the focus of these seven letters. We also have to read it as the heart of Jesus to His church. We read in Revelation 2, beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am He who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, 
I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken to pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every letter ends with those words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so we don't read this letter and wonder, wow, what was wrong with those people in Thyatira? <laughs> how, how bad did they screw up that they get this letter? You know, they really take a beating in this. No, we don't read it that way. We read it with an ear to hear what the Spirit says to us, to our about us, about our own holiness or lack thereof. And what we see in this letter is that God expects His people to walk in holiness. And as we find ourselves in a sin-obsessed culture, what does God call us to do? How do we hear Him? How do we stand firm in this? And so in, in the face of this sin-obsessed culture that Thyatira was in and, and that we are in, Jesus has a call to holiness. And in that call to holiness, there are two commands for His church. And the first is that all-important command to repent. His first command is to repent. Now, if you're like me, and you grew up watching a lot of Westerns, you've seen more than one old Western where the preacher in town is standing there, usually in his black garb and his black hat. Why on earth do preachers wear the black hat? That's what the bad guys wear in Westerns, right? Anyway, the preacher's standing there, and usually there is a woman of, shall we say, ill repute, uh, hanging out in the local saloon, and the preacher has his Bible up over his head, and he's in it in one hand, and then the other hand, he's pointing at her, and he's yelling, Jezebel! Is it just me? Have you ever seen that, seen that scene? No one watches Westerns? My goodness, where have you people been? You've seen that, you know? You've heard it used that way to describe a woman of, of questionable character. Maybe you've heard that in movies. Maybe you've even heard it in real life. Jesus uses the name Jezebel here to provoke a response. Do you realize that name had not appeared in Scripture for 900 years? The name Jezebel does not appear prior to this. You have to go all the way back to 2 Kings when she dies. By the way, it's an, that's an amazing story. If you get some free time this afternoon, it's some nice light reading. Hear about the horrible things that happened to Jezebel. Um, 2 Kings, she dies. That's the last time the name was used. It was not used in Scripture again until right here. This is the last time it's used. It wasn't even used in the extra books that we don't have in our Bible. You know, all those extra books that some churches have, we don't have them. They didn't even use the name Jezebel. What I'm trying to get you to see is this name was hated. The Jews absolutely hated this name. They did not speak this name. This name was unfitting. And it really still should be. It, it should be like other words that we don't use. There, you guys know that, right? You guys know that there are words that we don't use? That Christians don't use, right? You guys know that? There's words we don't use. There, there's words we don't use because number one, no one deserves to be called those words. And number two, it is unfitting of Christian character to slander someone. You guys know that, right? Remember that? 
that where does slander come from? That's, that's Satan's job, right? So we don't slander. We don't use those words. This name, Jezebel, needs to, in your head, put it in that category of those kind of words that you will not speak, that you will not use. And I guarantee you, no one you know has sinned bad enough to earn this name. And yet Jesus uses it. So who is this person that, that Jesus uses this hated name to describe? Well, we don't know much about her. She, we know she was a false teacher there in Thyatira. She called herself a prophetess. And she led people astray in the way that they thought about God. She led them astray from their holiness and she led them into sin. And really, Jesus' point is not who she is. Jesus' point is what she wouldn't do. She would not repent. That's one of those words also that we throw around. Repent. We, we hear that word a lot. I'm not sure we understand what it means. What does, what does repent mean? Does it mean I'm sorry? Doesn't mean I'm sorry I did it. Doesn't mean I'm sorry I got caught. Is that what repent means? Repent literally means to change your mind. To change your mind around about something. To, to change the way that you think. Because if you change the way you think, it should change your actions as well. It should change what you do if you change what you believe. We've got people today who've changed the way they think about sin don't we? We don't call it sin anymore. We, we talk about making mistakes or we slipped up or you know we, we, we took the wrong path. We say something like that. Sometimes we don't talk about sin at all and, and we say, well, that's, that's not a sin. That's my choice or that's my lifestyle or that's who I am or that's none of your business. Who are you to judge? You notice the call isn't just for Jezebel? and her followers to repent. Did you notice what the real problem is here? The real problem isn't Jezebel. The real problem is the church. Look at what he says in verse 20 about the church. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. I have this against you that you tolerate. Believe it or not, there are things in this very tolerant world we live in, there are things that we should not tolerate. The church has to take sin seriously. And the first place we have to take sin seriously is within the church. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, he says, For the time of judgment has come. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Where does judgment begin? begins with the church. It starts here. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the Gospel of God? You see, the problem with darkness is not that it's dark. The problem with darkness is that the light isn't shining on it. That the light has somehow tolerated the darkness. You can't complain that the dark's too dark. You have to complain that the light's not bright enough. And, and if the church has tolerated sin, then we've allowed darkness to overtake the light that we have. What does Jesus call us to be? You are the light of the world, right? The problem's not darkness. Darkness exists. The problem is the light 
isn't shining. Our light can't shine if we are tolerating sin. Let me say one other thing about this. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. It's interesting, He does that. I gave her time to change her ways. I gave her time to change her way of thinking. People, people do repent. People change. People can change. You've got people in your life You've got people in your life who have allowed sin to make a mess of their lives. And as a result, since you're close to them, their sin has made a mess of your lives as well. Don't forget, don't forget this. God has not written the final chapter yet. He's not written the final chapter of their lives yet. Don't write someone off before God is done writing their story. Keep praying. Keep pleading. And keep trusting that God is not done yet. So the first command here is to repent. To change our way of thinking. Well, what about the rest of the people in Thyatira? The ones who hadn't bought into Jezebel and her sin? Jesus has a call for them and for us. He has a call for the church to repent and to resist. He calls us to resist. I mentioned earlier, this is the harshest letter of all seven. It is the longest. It is also the harshest. But it also... There's a lot that's positive in this letter. Look at verse 19. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed your first. Did you hear that? Your latter works, the stuff that you're doing now, is greater than what you did when you first started. Do you remember what he said about Ephesus? He said, I have this against you that you have forsaken the love you had at first. In other words, Ephesus was doing less than they had done at first. They were loving less than they had loved at first. That's not his criticism of this church at all. This church is growing in their commitment, but the danger of sin is real. The call to repent is real, and for the faithful, the call is to resist. He says in verses 24 and 25, "...but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching..." who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. I love what he says there. Hold fast what you have until I come. Resist the lure of temptation. There were temptations in that church. This is, there are temptations in this church. You hear that in verse 29 or 24. He says, what some call the deep things of Satan. I hope you can hear the sarcasm in Jesus' voice there because there is definite sarcasm there. What were these so-called deep things that Jesus uh, is talking about here? Well, the, the false teachers of those days, the false teachers taught that God had given them special knowledge that they had secret knowledge, that, that God didn't give that to you. He gave that to us. And this is why you're so confused about what we do. This is why you think that we're sinning when really we're not. We're actually very, very holy because we have secret knowledge from God and, and you don't. And so it's not our fault. It's your fault. You're just not good enough. And God didn't give you the secret knowledge that He gave us. So obviously, you have the problem. You don't understand God like us. And Jesus says, those who have this so-called secret knowledge of deep things. We still get that today. 
We still get that. I, I hear it all the time. I hear people say, you just don't get it. You don't understand. You're, you're out of touch. I'm, I'm told that I'm old-fashioned. Me, of all people. I'm told that you got to get with the times. That you can't live your life by a 2,000-year-old book that is not relevant anymore. What does Jesus say? Hold fast to what you have until I come. There is nothing else. It's not about those deep things, those hidden things. It's about what you already have. And Jesus says, I don't lay on you any other burden than what I've already given you. Hold fast to what you have until I come. Resist. See, there's a standard for the church to uphold. A standard of holiness. A standard of purity. We are called to stand apart from the world. That's not always easy. That's not always popular. But that's the call. There are a lot of voices out there with a lot of different messages. And many of them are saying, this isn't a sin. That's not a sin. Stop being so uptight. The church is out of touch with the modern times. But Jesus has given us a standard. And there He warns us right there that there are those who would seduce us to abandon our standard and think otherwise. And He says, hold fast to what you have until I come. The call is to repent from sin. The call is to resist sin. Why? Because the goal of this call to holiness is that the church would reflect the character of Christ. You need to hear this. The point of holiness is not so we can tell other people that they're bad. Okay? The point of the call to holiness is not so that we can tell other people that they're bad or that, they are, that their lifestyles are wrong. The point is so that the church can look like Jesus in this world. I know a lot of people who have led very pure lives. I know a lot of people who have come nowhere near committing the sins of this Jezebel here. But neither do they have the blessings promised in this letter. Why? Because in their desire to be holy, there's an arrogance. There's a pridefulness. Look at me and how much better I am than you. And that arrogance and that pride is nothing like Jesus. Look again at the the commendations in verse 19. He says, I know your works, your love, your faith, and your service, and your patient endurance. These are things that Jesus knew about the church in Thyatira. And these are things that we want Him to know about us. And if those traits are not reflected in our moral purity, if those traits are not reflected in our holiness, it's not really holiness. And in addition, he says in verse 19 that you are doing more than you did at first. Holiness is something that we grow in. Something we mature in. There are people in this world, there are people who are trying, and they're not quite there yet. And sometimes we write them off because their view of holiness doesn't match ours. We need to give them time to grow. 
We need to trust Christ's presence in their lives and we need to give them time to grow and to do more than they're doing at first. If I can take us back again to that first letter to the church in Ephesus, man, it, it just all starts there and it starts again with love. I mentioned earlier this letter to Thyatira. It's the tip of the arrow. It is the center point of all seven letters. But you have to begin back with Ephesus. You have to begin with the primacy of love in that call to holiness. It's not about being right. It's not about right living. It is about knowing that you are loved by God and allowing that love to be seen in the way that you live and the way you treat other people. Thyatira is a... It's odd that it's in this list. You know, all the other cities, I've, I've told you, they were big cities. Several of them were capitals of their region. You know, Ephesus, there's about a quarter of a million people in Ephesus. Smyrna's got about 200,000 people in it. These are big cities. Thyatira was a, it was a little town in the middle of nowhere. Thyatira at one time was a big deal, but their power was gone. Their prestige was gone. They, they no longer had this commanding presence, and they had dwindled down to nothing. And they didn't have any uh, great temples like the other cities had where to worship all these foreign gods. They didn't have a, you know, the Roman presence of the government there. All Thyatira had was commerce. They produced bronze in Thyatira, and it was beautiful, pure bronze. Perfect bronze. Thyatira was known for its bronze work. Bronze that had been tested and purified in the fire. You know, back then, uh, they didn't have mirrors. I don't know if you know this or not, but in, in, in Bible times, they didn't have mirrors. They didn't have glass like we have glass, and they didn't have silver on the back, and they didn't have mirrors that had almost perfect reflections. Instead, you know what they used? They used bronze. They would get a sheet of bronze, and they, they actually they looked like little hand mirrors. They would have a little round piece of bronze on a handle, and they, they would Polish that bronze. You know what the other word for when you polish metal? It's called you burnish it. If you burnish it, you're polishing it. And so they would burnish the bronze until there was this wonderful, almost perfect shine, and that's what they used for mirrors. Do you see how Jesus identifies himself in this letter? In verse 18, he says, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze eyes like fire he sees our deeds our love and our faith he knows our holiness or our lack of holiness and like burnished or polished bronze we are called to reflect christ in this world the letter is harsh in its confrontation of sin but it's also gracious in the gift that it has to those who conquer verses 26 through 28, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken to pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. What you need to see in that is not what is promised, the issue is not what is promised. It's who is being promised. To the one who conquers, I will give authority over the nations. Who has authority over the nations? Well, do you remember Matthew 28, 18? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. 
Jesus as authority. So, so what is being promised to the one who conquers? Who's being promised to the one who conquers? Jesus. Verse 28, he says, I will give him the morning star. That's an interesting reference also. I've mentioned several times that a lot of what's written in these seven letters and a lot of what's written in Revelation is written to address the abuses of the empire and the abuses specifically of the emperor Domitian. Domitian was emperor in Rome at the time. Domitian insisted on being worshipped as a god. He wanted to be seen as the savior of Rome. That was Domitian's big claim. He was Rome's savior. In fact, there was a phrase back then. It's a good Good to remember things like this, especially in a political year, because it sounds a lot like a political phrase. It sounds like something, if you were running for emperor, you would use this phrase. But the phrase back in Rome in those days was, a new day has dawned in Rome, and Domitian is the morning star. You'd vote for that, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's great. A new day has dawned in Rome, and Domitian is the morning star. Jesus says, to the one who overcomes, to him, I will give the morning star. If you go all the way to the end of Revelation, you go all the way to chapter 22, in verse 16, as Jesus is wrapping this revelation, this vision up, Jesus says in Revelation 22.16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches, for those seven churches. And he says, I am the root and the descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. See, in your stand against sin, too often this call to holiness, it's a call to loneliness. When you stand against sin, it becomes a stand against the world and it becomes a very lonely thing. We can feel like no one hears us. We can feel like no one notices us, like no one has any regard at all for the standards by which we are trying to live. They don't care about who we are or what we say or what we stand for. Jesus says to the one who overcomes, I will give the morning star. He doesn't just promise us His attention. He promises us Himself. You're never alone in your stand in holiness. Stand with me now. We're going to pray. Father, You know our nature. You know our sin. Eyes like flames of fire. Nothing misses Your sight. And in Your desire to know us, You did not set Your standard of holiness aside. Rather, You gave us Your Son. We thank You that You met our lack with Your grace. And now, as we stand committed to hold Your standard of holiness before this world, let us not set Your Son aside. Let us not minimize who He is or what You call us to be. Let our character be reflections of Your Son's character. Not so that the world can see our holiness, but so that they can see Him. Let Christ shine through us. Help us to hold fast to what You've given us. Hold fast to Your call to purity. And hold fast to Your gift of grace. We thank you for both of these. In the name of the One who is our bright morning star, in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.